Hello everyone, I am Mariah Parsons, I'm your host. If you are new to Learn to Listen, welcome, and if you are a regular listener, thank you. Learn to Listen is a mental health and wellness podcast designed to encourage vulnerability in storytelling and to empower through empathy. If you like the show, please, please, please go subscribe on your favorite listening platform. I also have built out our social media. Um, So we are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, the whole, you know, every channel, omni-channel experience, wherever you like to find your content best, it's there for you. On this episode of Learn to Listen, we're joined by Allison Allen, a licensed social worker in the state of Massachusetts and co-founder of Earnhardt Singer Therapy Group. Allison tells us about what therapy is actually like, the difference between sports psychology or sports psychologists and clinical therapy and clinical therapists. Um, We also go over the negative connotation between vulnerability and weakness and where we think that comes from, where we go. And we also talk about the difference between process and progress. So this was one of my favorite episodes. Allison is great. As you'll hear in the episode, we're going to have her back on to continue the discussion because it was just so wonderful. So please stay tuned and remember to subscribe. Hello and welcome to Learn to Listen. Today we are joined by Allison. Allison, thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to have you. Um, a little bit of background, Allison and I were featured on Athletes for Hope, their whole being uh, podcast, and I'm so excited to continue our conversation. Um, we'll dive into that in a bit, but first, if you could give your background, introduce yourself, that would be great. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, My name is Allison Allen. I am a co-founder of a group therapy practice in the greater, that serves the greater Boston area. We're called Earhart Singer Therapy Group, and we focus on providing clinical mental health needs for collegiate and professional athletes. Awesome. And so a little bit of background on the conversation that we had with Athletes for Hope was all about therapy FAQs, and I'll definitely include that link to that episode in this episode's description. Um, but a couple of things that I wanted to bring in from that conversation that like really stuck with me um, was one, like the difference between sports psychology and mental health. And my main takeaway was like sports psychology really helps with the mental skills and like your performance, right? Like you are asking the athlete, like, how did you perform? Right. And then clinical therapy is more of that mental health diagnosis and how do you um, treat the person and how are you feeling? That's the question that you rather ask. Um, So I think, I think that was like such a cool distinction that we made or that you provided us with. And then something else I really loved and want to share with our listeners was the metaphor that you have for therapy, like the tree metaphor. So can you, I know it's a, um, a thing that you'll repeat or carry over from our other conversation, but can you just go into that a little bit to kick us off? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think for starters, uh, you did a great job, um, summer the difference between um, what, a, what a sports psychologist or a mental skills coach would do versus what a therapist or a mental health clinician would do. Uh, and I think you know, even just to simplify it even more, uh, the former, so sports psychologists, you know, will ask you the question, uh, how did you do? 
right? Mm-hmm. What do we, what do we need to, to help you feel more confident to get your performance up to par? Uh, and then the therapist will ask, how are you? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, the way that um, I like to kind of pose the two different questions because they're talking about performance execution enhancement versus the clinical mental health component of therapy. Um, And that's where I think the image of the tree really kind of comes in because oftentimes athletes and and, and folks in, you know, general population will, will kind of wonder, well, what is therapy and and how does it actually work? And that's where I love to use this image of, of the tree. And oftentimes people will come into therapy because their leaves and their branches are causing problems for them, right? So this can look like uh, some kind of, you know, behavioral issue, uh, maybe some thought patterns that are just cycling through, Um, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of these visible, almost, you know, visible symptoms that, that bring somebody in. And so there's a, cool dual process that happens in therapy where initially the uh, the client and the therapist will be addressing the leaves and they'll be addressing the branches and they'll take a look at how these behaviors are negatively impacting the person. Um, you know, they, they are really negatively impacting um, quality of life and daily functioning and that kind of a thing. And also what's happening at the same time underneath that is the therapist is really kind of listening for, well, why, why are those behaviors and thoughts there to, to begin with? Mm-hmm. And how did those branches and leaves grow? And so that's where you start doing some of the trunk base work where the, the, the client and the therapist are kind of get down a little bit deeper and really kind of begin to explore the genesis of what is going on, what is being pr- problematic. And then you go down even deeper. And this takes, I always say, this is process that we're looking at. We're not looking at progress yet. Mm. It's process. So it takes time. And you go down even deeper until you find yourself working in the root. And this is like the wiring of the brain, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is where you're diving down and you're taking a look at maladaptive thought patterns or and or narratives that have been constructed over time that are no longer serving. And this is where you start to do some of this deep clinical psychological work where you're kind of unrooting what has been developed and, and structured and you're restructuring it. And the cool thing is, is that this has, you know, folks have been doing therapy for a long, long time, long, long time. And there's been skeptics around that. Like, well, yeah. you know, is it really working? Mm-hmm. And the cool thing is, is now we have brain scans that show that that root-based work is actually being shown in the brain where we can see that even in adulthood, our brains are plastic and they can actually shift. The brain, you know, the, the pathways of the brain can actually shift, which I think is just a lovely image to kind of go with the root. So uh, that's, yeah, that's how I kind of like to think about it. Yeah. I love that. Um, 
that depiction. And I think it helps a lot of people. I mean, I, I studied neuroscience. I can't even remember if I told you about that, but so like the malleability of the brain fascinates me. Right. So that makes that metaphor makes so much sense for me. Like the neurons kind of look like very branch, like, right. Like very, very much like roots. Yeah. And so it makes a ton of sense to me. And I love that you brought up the difference of like process and progress. And so I think that's where some of the skepticism around therapy comes into play is because I feel like we're so geared to getting quick results. And so it can be very frustrating, especially when it's like something that is your, your brain or your mentality. It is so intrinsic to who we are. So you want to have really quick results, right? Like we have such little patience for ourselves sometimes. And so I want to ask you like, in your profession, have you seen, like, what would be your response if someone's like, oh, like, this is taking a while to understand, like, with my, to work with my therapist of, like, how do I know that it's not taking, like, too much or too little time? Like, is it, is it really just something that you um, have to believe in, like, yourself and your relationship with your therapist? Like, what would you say, kind of, to ease some of that, maybe skepticism from someone who hasn't, um, tried therapy and is kind of curious about it? Yeah, no, it's, it's such a great question. And I think people, when, when people come to therapy, oftentimes they come in at a point where the pain is so big, it's so Mm -hmm. great and takes up so much space. And when we're in pain, right. And as athletes, right. We know what it feels like to have physical pain, right. That what we want is for it to be fixed right? Like I can't feel like this anymore. And so, you know, oftentimes we can go into a doctor and they can, you know, give us this plan and this is what we follow to rehabilitate or, you know, what, you know, get this procedure done. Right. And it'll kind of realign you. I'm not trying to minimize that, but I'm just, you know, trying to draw an example where there's a visibility to that, that you don't get to see in therapy. Mm -hmm. And So it's important, I think, to acknowledge that when people come through the door, they're in so much pain, psychic and emotional pain, that they want to feel better right away. Yeah, I I get it. I totally get it. You know, and if I could make them feel better right away, I I would, you know, but, but I'm not a magician. I don't have a magic wand. No therapist has the magic wand. And I think you know, and I, and I have a lot of experience. I, I worked in community mental health before this. Um, and I worked on, and I did training in college counseling centers. So I think this is something, you know, that the general population shares, but when we're thinking specifically about athletes who are incredibly high functioning individuals that measure success by progress, mm-hmm. you're in a lot of ways, actually the first part of therapy is helping them unroot that thought process. Mm, Yeah. Right. The work that we're going to do, you're not going to be able to see right away. Mm -hmm. And so what I tell people is that we're going to reframe the way we're approaching this. We're not looking at progress. We're actually looking at process first process is the cousin of progress, Mm -hmm. right? Because in process, we actually make progress. 
right? But the person has to buy in, has to believe, has to surrender to the fact that it's process first. And that's mm-hmm. where we mark our improvement, right? Success, you know? I'm, um, yeah, air quotes because, right? Like all of that is we define as we go. Um, and so in a lot of ways, this is where the therapeutic relationship really matters because the client has got to trust me, has mm-hmm. got to trust themselves, has got to trust the process. So I'll just give you a brief example to kind of show you what that looks like. So I have a client that um, that came in, athlete, you know, very um, prog- uh, progress driven and one, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just that right away. That's, wanted, that's, yeah, that's, that's I want to feel better, and I need, I need the steps. I need the, you know, uh-huh. I need the workout plan. You know, like yes. show me there. You know, and so we spent weeks, you know, debunking that narrative and building up this new one of like, look, see, we're going to do this differently. Um, and what progress looked like her in process, just so everyone here can kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about in real in real life right, is that um, there, there was a topic for her that was very painful to talk about and very painful to tolerate. In other words, they, you know, she would come in, she would like maybe mention this is what was going on for her, but then back up and we talk about something else, right? So ultimately what's bringing her through the door is that issue, right? Mm-hmm. That's the issue that she wants progress on, right? But if we can't talk about it, we, we aren't going to go anywhere, right? So over time, this this took probably, I would say maybe about two months, but there is no timeline with these things. So I'm careful in saying this, but again, it's just an illustration. About two months, she could get to a point where she could initiate a conversation, not me. I didn't ask. She mm. could initiate a conversation about this topic and begin to tolerate the conversation. Yeah. So the behaviors weren't stopping. No. Okay. So it didn't look visibly like anything was changing. But see, the process is that she was able to initiate it. She was able to talk about it. She was able to cry about it. Mm-hmm. And that's the process. Right. And then months later, after that, all of a sudden the behaviors started to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, I'm sure for you as a, as you're sitting there and you see that your um, client is able to initiate that conversation that was once painful, I'm sure that is some validation in a sense where you're like, oh, I see the difference. And you hopefully know that the behaviors are going to follow. And so thank you for sharing that. I think it's a beautiful picture to paint because it makes it real. And, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people that know, like, as you were speaking, even myself, I was like, oh, I know exactly what my, what my painful points used to be. And I've done the work to, you know, go through something similar where it's like, oh, it doesn't have to be so painful. And there can be a process around it that you shift and how you're thinking about something and ultimately how your behaviors can change and how you, um, it like desensitizes almost 
bringing up mm-hmm. such a painful point is it's like, oh, I have, it is not as like triggering for me to talk about. And so I also want a question that popped into my head was, do you find it like, are there any differentiators or any patterns you see as far as like getting that buy-in from a client of like, is it harder with these types of people or are there different techniques that work with, you know, these types of people, or is it really just a, um, like a really individualistic approach? Do you think? Yeah, that, that's a big question. And I think, um, I think it's, it's a big question that I could answer, uh, in this way. And, and it, it really, truly is case by case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really is because at least, at least in the way that I practice and, you know, people have different styles and all of this, at least in the way that I practice, I practice from a relational lens. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's my belief system that, that we're not going to do any kind of clinical work together until we have a relationship, right? In that relationship, there has got to be trust. There's got to be trust. So it, you know, in how you approach that with different um, clinical presentations, like how I would approach that with somebody with depression versus how I would approach that with somebody with disordered eating versus Mm -hmm. how I would approach that with somebody with bipolar, right? I, I don't think it'd be fair to say, this is how I do that with this group. This is how I do that with this group. This is, I, because I really do feel like I, I need to receive what the person is bringing in the room for me mm-hmm. to assess how we can even begin to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what's maybe adds to the stigma of mental health is it is so much by a case by case basis. Right. And so it's hard to be like, oh, someone breaks a bone. We have this procedure in place. Right. Like, I think that um, that's kind of the answer I was expecting just from my own experience and from um, teammates and such. And so that is of no surprise to me. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think even though it is a case by case basis for the most part, I hope that someone would find comfort in that of like, oh, like nothing's wrong with me. It's just what I need to do, what I need to have to in order to be successful. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I love that we've done kind of like this deep dive on therapy. And one of the things that we have discussed has been kind of how I started this podcast, how we got here. And I love that you drew this parallel. So you kind of told me about it. Um, so I want you to kind of put it in your own words, because I think you beautifully did so. And I think, you know, by your smile, what I'm talking about. Yes. Yes. So perhaps before I do, you can give your, your tagline. Oh, you're okay. You're putting it right back on me. (laughs) I should have expected that. That's just the sentence and I'll take it from there. (laughs) Yes. Well, I I told you that learn to listen, um, is a podcast that encourages vulnerability and empowers through empathy. And so when I said that, that is yes, a good, um, good way to set this up for you, set the stage. Yes. So it was funny because we were on a phone call and talking about this podcast and what we wanted to talk about. And Mariah said that, and I was like, can you say that again? Can you (laughs) say that again for me? And why it struck me so much was because this podcast is actually 
the parallel here, right, is that this podcast is talking about vulnerability and empathy. And it struck me so profoundly because I, but it, because it was like, wait a minute, that's exactly what therapy is. That's mm. exactly what therapy is, right? We must become vulnerable in front of the other. Like the client must become vulnerable in front of the therapist in order to gain access to that process and progress that we were just talking about. It will not work mm-hmm. if you cannot become vulnerable. And so the, the job of the client is vulnerability and the job of the clinician is empathy. Mm. And the difference between empathy and sympathy is Sympathy is, oh my goodness, you know, I know exactly how you're feeling. I just went through that last week, right? It was so hard. It was so difficult. Oh my gosh. You know, what was it like for you? Oh yeah, that was like that for me or, oh, you know, I had this different experience. But empathy, right, is to be able to get into somebody else's experience with something without having experienced it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so empathy becomes this superpower that equalizes in the room, right? I might have no idea what you are going through right now because I can't even imagine what that's like. And also, I can sit here with you and listen to that and hold that space with you and feel with you, right? We can become vulnerable and feel with you the sentiments that you're feeling. Yeah. And, and kind of what I loved and what we were talking, you know, what you and I were talking about was this idea of this cultural norm where a lot of, a lot of podcasts, a lot of books, right. Brené Brown, like, yes, mm-hmm. like, all you know, the good stuff, right. Their vulnerability is such a, is such a hot topic right now. We want to yeah. talk about it because all of us know how good it is, right? Mm-hmm. All, of us know, all of us know that it's going to get us somewhere. Um, but there's a safety in talking about it. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, yep. there's, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just agreeing. Yes, completely yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like, like we can read all the books about it and we can say, yes, that resonates. And yes, I, you know, that, that, I, I see that all over here, you know, and, and, you know, podcasts do an incredible job about bringing experts in to talk about it or, or even to kind of talk, talk, to actually talk about it. Right. But there's always this distance yeah. of like, we can talk about vulnerability. We can explore what it looks like, but therapy is where you actually do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I love that we discussed beforehand mm-hmm. was that like mainstream media, I love that we're trending in the direction of like, oh, it's super, um, you know, we're all super willing or su- we we're all super motivated to talk about vulnerability. And there's now leaders in the space like Brene Brown, um, Michael Gervais, Victoria Garrick, mm-hmm. also some of my other few favorites who are taking vulnerability and making it a platform that they are able to speak on to like help so many other people be like, oh, there are these resources that you can go read about or listen to or 
you know, it, it's kind of like a conversation starter. Sure. And I love that we, uh, like you and I, when we were discussing it, we took it to that next level and was like, we were like, okay, but the therapy is where you actually do the work. And I think that's where, and I've, I can't remember exactly where either I read this or I had this conversation with one of my friends is that it can be almost exhausting how many resources that we have out there for like, like self-help books and podcasts, like improve your life. Cause you're, you're taking in all of these different resources, which are great if you need those resources. But then once you start to have a lot of them, I feel like you could find yourself in this space where you are, you think you're doing that work, that therapy is where you would actually do that work. Yeah. And so it feels like you're putting in a lot of effort and time, Yeah. yeah. but the behaviors aren't changing because it isn't a, a you're not improving that process. You're mm-hmm. reading about it. And so it's a little bit removed from the individual. And I feel like that would be a space that would be unmotivating to continue doing the work because you're, it's almost like a placebo effect of like, Oh, I'm reading this book. I'm really into this podcast or this, you know, this researcher. And so I know about all of it, but I haven't taken that knowledge and applied it in therapy. And so that was one, one conversation that, um, I had that after we, we had hung up, I was like, Oh my gosh, we need to talk about this because I feel like there's such a plethora of resources and the application is now like the next step where as a society, like, I hope we go. Absolutely. I I, I love that. I love that. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, and as you were talking about it, the word that came up for me was oversaturation. Right? Like we can become oversaturated with material from the outside. And certainly we need a bit of it here and there to help guide us in the right direction or help us explore like, okay, what's going on. Um, but at some point it's too much. It's yeah. too much. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about, about self-help, like all of those are great, you know, self-help books and all of it's great. But, you know, you were talking about being unmotivated to do the work. Like if you're putting it all in there and you're not seeing any change, I think, again, that's another one of the importance of therapy and the therapeutic relationship is that, you know, you're, you're doing that work in, um, a container. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and vulnerability is scary to do this kind of work. It's, it's hard. It's scary. You are opening up into it. Right. And I think sometimes another Thing that can feel unmotivating is is that feeling of like oh my gosh I'm a walking ball of nerves exposed you know why would I want to why would I want to do this and the great the great thing about therapy when you're looking at vulnerability is is that it's our job as therapists to help contain that for you yeah you know so when you walk in through the door we can gently open it back up and then before you leave right the therapist is keeping time you know you never it's like you learn this in training, you know, 101, you know, never let somebody <laughs> yeah, give us some insight, it, you know? <laughs> so I would, you know, I have a rule and everybody's a different style, but like, I have a rule for myself that if we've hit, you know, we have 10 minutes left in the session and we're talking about trauma, I hit pause and I say, we're going to stop right there for today. And we're going to take what we've just done here. And we're going to find a way to kind of put it back in the box. We know we can come to it next time and we can and will, if you want, but 
you know, it's, it's my job to help keep you feel safe, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing worse, right. Than becoming vulnerable and feeling undone. It's, yes. It's an unmotivator. Like you were saying. Mm-hmm. I love that container metaphor of where you're conscious in the practice in the moment. And you know, that it is proactive rather than, rather than reactive, right. Of like, you are proactively, making sure that you're setting your, you know, your next session, your client, yourself, like up for success for the next time and like helping develop that process. Like we've been talking about. And so I love that, that container metaphor of being able to strategically like fit the pieces back together after, like you just said, you like open yourself up to vulnerability. Now, how do you reconstructure or re restructure there we go um the conversation to end on like a better note so that next time it isn't as difficult to get to that point of being super vulnerable yes absolutely yeah and i think like as as you were talking i thought about this too right the other benefit is is that you know again doing our root-based work what we're doing on that tree when when we do that is that um i'm i'm modeling for them what needs to be done outside of the room. So if they find themselves in a space where they become vulnerable, it's dysregulating, it's too much, right? Over time, we've practiced it so much that those roots kind of be able to to kind of create new pathways where the person can say, oh, wait a minute, I'm feeling this. I know what I need to do to kind of tuck this back in and they can then do it independently, right? And that's progress right there. That's what progress Mm -hmm. looks like. Is that yeah, and utilize the models that we've created out and out in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and apply it right. Like that's yeah, that's exactly the the point. Um, in that, I think like therapy gives you the tools to then apply it outside of your session. Yes. Yeah, and I I love that, and I think too one key point that I wanted to hit on was that obviously like. I I love speaking about vulnerability. It's why I have this podcast. You love vulnerability because like you said, that is intrinsic to therapy. And so both of our backgrounds being in athletics, um, I think it's an important point to make is that we've also done the work to understand ourselves, to understand that process and progress into a point where we can speak to vulnerability and can have those roots be, you know, more exposed and have, um, you know, have that relationship with ourselves and have those tools to then apply into everyday life. And so I was hoping you could talk about your background in athletics and that we could dive into that because, right, you, you specialize in athletes and I have an athletic background. It's how, you know, we met through Athletes for Hope. And I think even though we'll be talking about athletics, all of these, um, you know, our backgrounds will be applicable to like any other person who is um, listening. I think there's there's applications there. So I I, w- I hope that you could dive into your background and kind of shed more light on the process and progress that you've made that have now gotten you to this point to be able to help other people in getting um, to a healthier, better self. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for bringing us back to that. Um, I do think it's a very important discussion and perhaps 
I'll start kind of more generally in terms of cultural norms that I that I see that we that we'll all be able to acknowledge and recognize. And then maybe I could share a bit of like my personal experience within that cultural norm, and then and then maybe you can chime in a bit here too, because I know you, you've had your experiences with this as well. Um, and yeah, I, I'd love that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So I think one of what to have this conversation, right? We need to understand the context of this narrative in the world of athletics, where vulnerability, um, weakness is something bad, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's dangerous. It puts us in positions where we can be attacked, where we can lose, right? So across four, I, I was a swimmer. I'll talk about that in a minute, right? You know, you're like, okay, well, you're not on a field. Like, what you, what do you mean vulnerable? You know, like, yeah, <laughs> you're in a pool. Like, what are you doing? You know, yeah. uh, what vulnerability looks like in that sport, right? Is is that it is a team sport. You're you're working together against another team, right? And so, let's say you you know your team is really strong in freestyle, you know, and they can do freestyle really really good at that, but they have a vulnerability in swimmers that can do the backstroke right Mm. all of a sudden your team is super strong in this one area but has this weakness or is it's vulnerable to attack in this one area and then all of a sudden right there's this narrative around like okay we're going to do really good here but we're not going to do here and what do we do to kind of fix that there's something wrong with this we need to build this up we got to recruit so-and-so Right. So even in sport that isn't on a field or on the ice or whatever, you're still looking at vulnerability. Yeah. And the narrative around that is it's a problem and we need to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think um, in some ways, you know, I'll, I'll share. So, so that's the cultural, that's the cultural norm. And, but then you get into it, right? And every athlete then experiences this on an individual level, right? So you've got a cultural norm, you've got a team-based norm, and then you have the individual. It's multi-layered. Yeah. And when you go in and you're trying to understand your vulnerabilities, and we bring in mental health and therapy challenges giving everything we've just said right therapy therapy challenges vulnerability and says no 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 see there isn't a problem with vulnerability there isn't it's actually an opportunity mm. i love that and that, I mean, for me, is just like, I would love us as, you know, as a clinician, like I would love us to be able to move in the direction where the individual believes that, and then the team believes that. And then ultimately we've got this larger shift and understanding that vulnerability, vulnerability is not weakness. It is not problematic. It's mm-hmm. an yeah. It's an opportunity. I love that that depiction and that like reframing 
of how we see Mm -hmm. vulnerability vulnerability as a society because i think that's part of the the part of the like the we're moving in the right direction is when we take away that negative connotation of oh it's a weakness we are faltering here um there's like a gap in our process right rather than like oh shifting that that framing a little bit that mindset is like yes we need there's there is someone who isn't you know our backstroke isn't as strong as our freestyle but we could bring in someone that will add to the team and add to our you know our our strong um swimmers who are already in freestyle or or whatever the application is i love that depiction of vulnerability is an opportunity yeah yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely so and i think like you know a person a personal story here uh which is you know kind of why i'm doing what i'm doing now is that i was so i was a swimmer at lemoyne college and I had started experiencing panic attacks when I was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And panic attacks are, are, are kind of fascinating things to kind of go on because they're these like, I know it sounds funny to you to, to think about them this way, but they're, they're actually these lovely markers that are mm. inviting us to go in and say, something is awry, what is going on, Mm -hmm. right? So panic attacks, I think in a lot of ways are saying, hey, look, I actually need to get vulnerable right now. And panic attacks, if anybody has experienced them before, they're they're terrible, they're terrible and they're terrifying. And the last thing you wanna do (laughs) is to go in and figure it out, right? Like, I don't know, I'm not not gonna do that, you know? So, but because I wasn't paying attention to them and because nobody really knew what was going on with me, because there wasn't a ton of asking or understanding or anything like this, I went to college, you know, swam there at a, you know, obviously like highly competitive, highly pressured environment. And the panic attacks, of course, increased and got, you know, worse and worse. And ultimately I was on a training trip in Hawaii my freshman year. And I had a panic attack in the pool and it was terrifying. They had to pull me out. They had to, you know, it was really scary. Um, and I left that training trip and said to myself, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And so all, you know, I finished out that season, but ultimately that led to, um, a decision to, to leave my sport. And, you know, where vulnerability could have been really helpful right there is if somebody invited me into the conversation of what was going on. Yeah. So my panic attacks for my coach were a problem. They were a problem because after that I had to go to the hospital, right? They did all these tests on me. There's nothing wrong with you. They say, because my body physically was fine. Right. And all of a sudden my, my panic attacks became problematic for him. They became problematic for the team. But if we had, if we could switch the narrative 
and say, oh, wait a minute, these panic attacks are actually not a problem, they're opportunity. A teammate, a coach, a trainer could have said, hey, what, what was going on there? Yeah. Let's, let's maybe talk about that. Maybe you need some help. Maybe you need some support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than I'm sure there was an element of liability that your coach was like, oh, we don't know what's going on. So just like take, like remove the problem rather than solve it. Right. Like I'm, I don't, not to put um, my own words on your experience, but I'm sure just listening to you, that's, you know, where my mind goes of, I'm sure that's what like the reception of it was, right? Like it wasn't like, like you said, it wasn't an opportunity to be like, oh, let's help Allison get through what is going on. Let's get to the bottom of it. It was rather like, oh, this is a, a problem, like you said. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, and it's interesting because I think you find this in athletics as well, right? Is that it's like, oh, well, there must be something physically wrong with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And all the doctors are like, oh, you have sports induced asthma, you know? And I'm like, I really don't think that's it. You know, nobody yeah. was, and again, this was, you know, I'm going to date myself a little bit, here, but <laughs> you know, this was 2004, 2005, you know, yeah. and people weren't talking about mental health. They weren't talking about that. So yeah, I mean, we're actually asking the athlete community to debunk decades of narrative by saying, mm-hmm. wait a minute, these things can be invisible and might have nothing to do with the body at all. Yeah. And the brain is a body part. So. Yeah, exactly. And the most essential one, right? Yeah. Like you, yeah. you, you can yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be the person you are without it. And so, yeah, I appreciate, thank you for being vulnerable on this podcast and sharing your story. I, it has never lost on me how much that takes, even, even if it, is a while ago and you've done the work to um, process it and grow from it. I still deeply appreciate it. And for me, you know, and I remember you saying on the athletes for hope podcast that, you know, the asthma aspect, like, Oh, you must just have like really bad, you know, sports induced asthma. And from someone who has had both like sports, sports induced asthma um, from, you know, just high school, bad, you know, bad circulation in the air, right? Like I know the difference from that feeling versus a panic attack while practicing. Cause I can, I, there was twice, two times where I definitely had a panic attack in a practice and I, I, it's terrifying. And so that to me is where, yes, there's work to be done in this space. And I don't really think that will ever be done, right? Like there are always be new things that we can work towards, but I then look back and I'm like, I'm at least grateful because while I was at practice, right, this was a couple of years ago versus even though you said, you know, you're dating yourself, um, but like versus early 2000s, it was a completely different atmosphere for me in that I had trainers that were like, oh, this is a panic attack. Like stop practicing. Something's going on here. Right. Like I at least had that perspective and those people in my life who were like, Oh, okay, this is an opportunity. Like you should go speak with someone. There's something going on. Right. And it was, it was around my injury at the time where I was, you know, feeling a lot of a a whole bag of emotions. And so one of the things that for, for me, before I knew I'd broken my rib is we were trying to figure out what was happening. We thought it was like muscle strain. 
I couldn't breathe completely right, but we don't think at the time, like the rib was completely snapped. So it was just like very tender and a lot of, um, like a lot of strained breathing, kind of what you would feel like in a muscle strain. And so that's where I was having those panic attacks. Cause I was like, what is wrong? Like it has been like two weeks until, you know, we, we knew it was happening, but then as soon as I got that validation and actually had like the physical evidence that I had broken my rib, it switched from that, like, like a little bit of relief where I was like, Oh, I'm not going crazy. Like there's something that was wrong with my body, but at the same time, there was also something that was going on in my brain that I didn't understand. And so my question for you is like, when you finally got the confirmation, I guess that it was a panic attack rather than sports induced asthma, what were your emotions? What were your feelings around that? Yeah. Oh, such a, great question. And, um, I'm really, you know, kind of saddened to report that I didn't realize they were, nobody told me they were panic attacks until I was actually in my early thirties. Wow. Okay. So very delayed. Very delayed. Yeah. And and they didn't stop, right? Like I continued to have them, um, not around sport, obviously, because I had left. Um, but when I, you know, what had happened, um, was that I was, I found myself in an emergency room because the panic attack was so bad that, you know, I lost feeling in all of my body parts and, you know, just these kinds of things. Um, the doctor, they ran all kinds of tests on my heart, on you know, whatever. I mean, all, everything all I'm sure the they were trying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, all the a stroke Cause I couldn't speak. Like, I mean, it was terrifying. Um, and, um, the doctor came in and he said to me, and I will never forget this. He said, you know, we ran all the tests and there's nothing wrong with you. You just had a panic attack. Hmm. And my reaction to that was just, yeah, nothing wrong with me. It was just a panic attack. Yeah. Like the downplay, like the, yeah, there, yeah. The disrespect almost of, yeah, just completely not categorizing it as something that you need to solve. Exactly. It's invalidating you know, in a lot, in a lot of ways, um, downplaying, like you said, the severity of mental health, um, because panic attacks, you know, are always not always, but, but usually found as symptoms of another type of mental health issue or a mental illness, right. They're typically symptomatic of something Mm -hmm. going on that needs attention. So I think when I found out that it was a panic attack, I was relieved and like, okay, we have a name for this. <laughs> I've been yeah. experiencing you since I was 17. Like, it's great that I now know, you know? Uh, so there was a part of it that was relief, but, 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 you know, what came after that, or maybe even before that, I'm not sure was this feeling of like, um, shame, mm. embarrassment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow. That's all that really happened. You know, you know, and I'm a therapist, 
right? Yeah. And so to, 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 to see that I could go there first, like I'm ashamed that this was a mental health issue, not a physical health issue. See that I could go there and I know all this stuff and I work in this realm. I mean, that just shows how pervasive these narratives, these cultural narratives are mm-hmm. around stigmatizing mental health. You know, yeah. it took the whole car ride home to say, wait a minute now, wait a minute. That's, that's, it's not just a panic attack. It's a panic attack and it needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's that validation that you have to give yourself to tell yourself, like work yourself out of that mindset. Like you just said, right? Like you're, you have of the majority of people in the world, right? Actually you being a practicing clinician, you have a a ton of knowledge in the space more than majority of people right and you like you just said found it so easy to slide back into that narrative of like oh my god that was only it like it's not this huge like you know unfortunate really drastic dramatic diagnosis but it's been disruptive from like you said 17 until you finally were told what was happening with your body and then could begin to understand it and work to know your triggers and how to avoid said panic attacks. And so I think that is such a, there's such a powerful message there for anyone to take of like, you might not, not, you might not understand what is going on. The people that you're talking to might not understand what is going on, but that doesn't mean that you should criticize yourself or, you know, tell yourself that, oh my gosh, this is my fault or, anything of that narrative because it is way harder to do the opposite and tell yourself, like remove yourself personally from it and be like, I am not this issue, this diagnosis that is going on. Like it's a part of my life, but just because it isn't fully understood or I'm not like, I don't understand it. Other people might not understand it. Um, I think it's way easier to slip into that narrative. And I'm hoping that as we talk more about it, people are like, oh my gosh, I I recognize that that was what is happening to me. There's just more awareness around mental health in general, but I love that you packed. And so like casually too, you said like, you're like, it was just, it was so easy to fall back into that narrative. That is such a powerful message. I think for anyone to take away. Yeah. 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 And I, I thank you for providing it, honestly. Um, and I know one last thing that I wanted to chat with you about is I think what is so closely tied to vulnerability is confidence and lack of confidence. And I know being an early professional myself, we've been talking about athletics. I have since transition transitioned out of my athletic career. Um, you had as well when you were younger than I was when you transitioned out of that career. And so athletics is what I drew a lot of confidence from. I found other athletes. I'm sure you relate to that as well. Um, but now that I'm in a like young professional stage of my life, mm-hmm. I found that confidence looks different and it manifests itself differently. And I've spoken with a lot of my friends who are now, you know, starting their careers and are looking towards being vulnerable and gaining confidence and hopefully being a leadership, being in leadership at some point later in their life. Um, and so I wanted to ask you like kind of that trifecta of vulnerability, confidence, and leadership. How do you think they all like play into one another? Is it like vulnerability comes first and then that lead lends itself to confidence and then 
eventually, hopefully you're in a spot of leadership. Um, cause I think some, a, a piece of it that comes into play is leaders or people who are supposed to be leaders or mentors, um, in the athletic realm, but just in general, haven't set that precedent of being vulnerable. And so that is why we've found ourselves in vulnerability is weakness. But how do you think we start to like change that? How we look at vulnerability and leadership? Oh, what a great question. That I think honestly could probably be a, a another episode in itself, right? I mean, like, we could do that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I almost feel like that that is worth you know, really spending some time on. And I think there are some really great uh, podcasts out there that talk about confidence. Um, I'm thinking about one in particular, um, Justin Sua has a podcast. He's a performance coach, um, skills performance coach. And, and he has somebody on that talks about confidence. Like one of his episodes is, is, um, focuses on confidence in sport. And so I feel like whatever comment I have will not do justice <laughs> the gravity of your question, because I think it's so big and, and so worth further exploring, but, but maybe just to kind of respond, not as an answer, but as to, as a response mm -hmm. and an invitation to maybe have another conversation beyond this. I like that you called it a trifecta. As you were talking, the image that came up for me was the recycle, you know, the recycle, oh, yes. like yes. the arrows, you know, because you were like, which one kind of comes first? And I was like, oh, we're looking at a chicken and an egg, you know? Uh -huh. um, so I think in some ways, maybe it could be helpful for, as we, as we think about it and talk about it, almost imagining it like the, like the recycle symbol. Um, and I think, I, I think I would have to start with vulnerability comes first mm -hmm. um, because in vulnerability, we look at our essence, our truths, our capital T's. And when we have solid understanding of our essence and our truth, we get to stand in that in a kind of confidence that only comes from a knowing, like a real yeah. knowing. And I think what happens is when people are standing in that kind of confidence, right? The kind of confidence where you can go on the field and lose and walk off the field and say, you know what? I learned something. I didn't lose. I learned something today. Mm-hmm that turns into inevitably and naturally leadership. Yeah. People are drawn to the figures that interpret life like that. Mm -hmm. They're magnetic. Magnetic. I love that. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. So, and again, right? Like if we're to think about it in the recycle, right? And then leadership right? Asks you to be vulnerable in front of other people, which mm -hmm. is going to challenge your confidence, right? Which then leads to more leadership, right? So I think, I think it would go something like that. Yeah. Cyclical. 
in nature. Yeah. Like a flywheel. Yeah. I love that. We'll definitely dive into it in another episode because it's too good to, (laughs) to not do. Um, yeah, well, so then we'll, we'll, we'll leave that Easter egg in there for our listeners and plan another episode all about kind of that trifecta, that, um, cyclical recycle, you know, sign for the three of those, but Alison, this has been so much fun. Um, I appreciate you and your practice, everything that you're doing for your patients and the people that are in your communities. Um, I think it's wonderful. And I am obviously drawn to the space and respect and want to be a part of the motion of improvement. And so I I really respect um, you being here and I've had so much fun, so many great pieces of information that you shared. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we are in community with one another, right? Like this population, we can't do this in silos. We can't do this in isolation. So, you know, I'm in Boston and my Boston bubble doing this, right? We get connected Mm -hmm. and and here we are, you know, now having these conversations. So, you know, thank you for taking interest in in my storyline and inviting me here. And uh, yeah, this is, this is very exciting to be a part of. Yeah. Can't wait till next time now. Yes, Yes, exactly. To be continued. (laughs) Thank you all for listening and dedicating some of your time to listening to these conversations and being an external part of that conversation. I hope you take away with each episode, maybe some new perspectives and some ways to reflect about how what we talk about pertains to your life and your own interests and goals.